This episode is sponsored by Arc IT, and you'll find out more about them later on in the episode. Hi there, I'm Evan Troxel. Welcome to my podcast about how technology is changing the architectural profession. Welcome back to the podcast. My name's Evan Troxel, and in this episode, I welcome Peter Mitev. That's spelled P-E-T-R if you're Googling him, and so obviously he's a fellow vowel skipper. I'm sure he's been doing it a little bit longer than I have, but he hasn't removed all the vowels like I have. So take that for what it's worth. So who's Peter? Peter is a technology leader with a background in software development and product management. And like many of my other guests, his education was in traditional architecture, but he's pivoted to tech. He previously led R&D at NBBJ, among other firms, which allowed him to merge his background in formal design with his passion for empowering technology. Currently, he's the CTO for Enscape, where he creates technology and user-facing software to empower and improve the design and delivery of the built environment. A lot of this episode is dedicated to talking about tools that people want to use versus tools that people have to use. I love this little snippet that I pulled from his personal website, where he says his main focus now is leveraging his understanding of technology and the AECO industry to create solutions that effectively improve the environment around us and answer the most pressing questions we face today as builders of tomorrow, social, environmental, and ethical. Fantastic stuff. This was a great conversation, so I can't wait for you to hear it. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Peter Mitov. Peter, welcome to the show. It's so great to have you here. Thank you very much. Excited to be here. So you've recently moved to Enscape from NBBJ, and I'm interested in that story or what, what you want to talk about with that story. I also am interested in today talking about kind of where we're at with rendering technology. Obviously, Enscape is, has a huge amount of mindshare out there right now. So that would be fun as well. So maybe we can start off with with just your kind of recent change away from an architecture firm into a rendering technology firm or t- tell us what's going on in, in your world. Yeah, it's a, it's a good one. It's, a, it's an interesting change as well. I, you know, I think the, the work that we were doing at, at NBVJ was, and, and of course still is, I mean, the work is, is continuing without me, but the work was was exactly in the right vein, or at least for me, in terms of my my kind of view on on the effects that technology can have on the the design and delivery of the built environment. And and the great thing there was that we were you know exploring really a huge variety of topics from from a lot of different angles. And you know no no two projects, no two questions were really identical. So we really had a lot of creative opportunity and, and creative freedom to, to solve those problems in, in new and you know potentially experimental ways, which I think was exciting, not just for us to do, but also for for our clients to to see and experience the benefit of it, right? And if honestly, if if we didn't have that positive feedback, we 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 would have been out of a job, of course, right, and we right. we wouldn't have had a a huge team the size that it it grew to uh, at our peak. So. I think it was an exciting, definitely exciting work. And for me, you know, the kind of the opportunity to, or rather the thing that pushed me to, to maybe seek for other um, employment opportunities was, was to really just try to do this at a, at a bit of a bigger scale. 
at the end of the day, I think, you know, you have a business model for an architecture firm, which is just in its, at its core, really conflicting with um, a business model of, of something like a tech company or software company. And, mm-hmm. and that poses some very natural and unexpected limitations on that kind of work. And it's just reality. I can't say it's good or bad. I don't know. The, the fact of the matter is that, you know, NDVJ pays the bills with design work. That's always going to be the priority. That's what the firm is is the best at. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they'll continue to be there. But for, for somebody like me, it also raises the question, well, you know, how do I take this knowledge that I have and and reach as many people as I can if, if I do believe that what I'm doing or able to do is is a, is a positive force, force for change in the industry? And the Enscape opportunity was a, a huge, I think, bit of luck and timing because initially I, I frankly wasn't even sure if I if I wanted to continue in AEC. Um, I yeah I, but mm. there was a like I said really great timing. Enscape was kind of in the middle of of reinventing itself from from the startup phase to the mature company phase, and with that you know we had a lot of exciting moves that I mean they started even even before me but. You know, I think it begins with with the founders kind of um, taking a more uh, a step back and and moving to our newly formed executive board, and then uh, people like myself and our, our new CEO Christian Lang joining and and really trying to take the the company to the next phase uh, where where we need to be. So we 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 realigned, I think, almost perfectly in our conversations on what we see happening in the industry and where we see the potential for for having a really positive and significant impact. And here we are. It's it's been a short time, but to be honest with you, it feels a lot longer than than it has. And I I I think we're doing we're onto some good things, and I hope that people are going to be excited to see them in the coming months and years. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I I've recently left a proper architecture firm in famous invisible podcasting air quotes as well. And you know, as far as the proper part goes, and into technology space for the exact same reason, which is to mm-hmm. to. Like I, somebody's got to step back, and obviously people are doing this, so the somebody is not super rare. But it's in in the grand scheme of architecture or AEC, it is more rare for people to step back and survey the entire landscape and f- try to figure out ways to make it better. And and you're not going to maybe apply that evenly everywhere, but you can figure out where you can apply it based on you know your interests, your skills, your talents, all of those things. And so I'm curious to see how that went from, cause I don't know exactly what you did at NBBJ, but I imagine it wasn't rendering technology. So <laughs> maybe, maybe talk about what you did at NBBJ, but, but then how you focused in on this, because it sounds like I know that that's going to be a little tricky because they're, like you said, that your vision's aligned and that is bigger than just the means and methods of how you're going to do that through rendering. So yeah. maybe take us through a little bit of that decision-making process or, or how that happened. It's a, it is, I mean, I, I do agree with you first that, you know, the vision is kind of more important than the means and methods by, by which we do it. So, I mean, at NBBJ, I was, I was quite lucky to lead the uh, design computation team, which, which was a really a international team, very multidisciplinary um, with the, with a very diverse mix of, of specialties as well. You know, some people were more design technologists, you know, they were, they were working in, in visual programming and, and other kind of tools. We also had proper software developers, UI, UX designers that were more comfortable working in, in code and, and outputting things that, you know, you could call more enterprise ready or, or however you want to classify them. So we all kind of came together under, under this one banner to, to, again, tackle those very unique 
problems that you know the different projects are are asking. But but you're right, it wasn't a direct. We were never really focusing on on visualization or or even interactive visualization specifically. I think our our tools and methods were about the same as you could call you know a programming language or or a tech stack and. That wasn't really the more important link, exactly like you said. It was it was about the the idea, the the vision to to create things that are accessible, things that that help share knowledge and skills rather than reinforce these you know existing silos that that the industry has had for for quite some time. And I really do believe that. I mean, to use Enscape as an example, that that is is really at the core of what we're doing and what we're trying to do more of. Is that democratization of of something that that used to be you know kind of on a pedestal and accessible to only um, you know a handful of people with specialized knowledge or or, or a big enough budget or, or whatever have you? But you know we feel that 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 skill set that power is much more effective if if we all can can use a piece of it. Totally, yeah, that's a that's a great way to frame it. And so maybe before we get. I would love to talk about how you guys kind of see that or what the vision is there. But before we get there, let's let's play a little bit of remember when. So how far back do you go with with rendering and, and maybe paint a picture of where things started for you in that realm? For me personally, I mean the prob- oh wow. Now 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 my memories are coming back. I yeah. thought I had an answer, but that wasn't the right answer. This is <laughs> this is awesome. Um, this is super so fun, actually, right? Like this, it the, is. No, it is. It I, totally this is, is. This is a creative technique I'm going to have to steal from me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I was going to say it started architecture school, but that that would be a bold faced lie. That's so not true. I I started uh, messing around with rendering when I think I was in in high school, if not middle school, and it wasn't specifically for buildings. I was I was doing just abstract things uh, really for the most part. I was kind of experimenting. It was still at the time uh, where I thought I, I wanted to be an artist. And before my parents, engineers, by the way, before they brought down the hammer and said, yeah, I don't know about that. You know, I don't, I don't know if that's going to happen. So um, I used, I used rendering technologies. I think it was cinema 4d that I was the heaviest mm-hmm. in back in the day with the various engines that, you know, you could kind of equip to it. And then in architecture school, you know, that became a lot more purpose driven. It was less about, uh, you know, a piece of art or or having fun. And it was more about portraying a story, telling a story and, and getting people to see what you see. So I think back then, the, the tools of the trade were not real time technologies. Obviously, we had the, the CPU based renderers, yep. which uh, was was anguish for everybody in the computer lab, you know, at midnight. Yeah, you, you know, you're old school when you did CPU rendering. <laughs> <laughs> oh man yeah yeah render networks render farms yeah setting them up exactly over, yeah. <laughs> well if you were lucky you had a render farm right if not you know your little macbook was over there running boot camp and overheating because you know you got this like dual core whatever processor right. trying to compute light bounces but you know that that kind of does form it enlarge my my vision today because I see where Enscape is right now. And I'm thinking, well, if I had this back in, in school or really any of the firms that I worked for when I interned, I mean, this 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 would have been a huge game changer yeah. uh, on a lot of different levels. And there are a lot of firms that are still in the same spot today. So, I mean, I think that's an opportunity for us to, to help them. Yeah, totally. I, I remember. So when as soon as you said the memories are flooding back, and if I would have said it started in architecture school, that would have been a lie. I, it's the <laughs> same for me. I, I didn't realize it, though, until yeah. you said that. And for me, it was like I downloaded an app on my old 
I, I had one of the very first Power Macintoshes, you know, and it mm-hmm. was it was a Pixar application. And I, you know, I know that RenderMan technology has been around forever, but I think it was like one of the first versions of RenderMan. And it was like, <laughs> you could download these weird little 3DM files from the internet and they weren't Rhino 3DM files, or maybe maybe it had a different extension. But it was, it was something you throw in there and then you would put in keyframes and animate it and it would render it and, and it was very CPU. And, but it was just kind of a toy at that point, although I'm sure, yeah. you know, Pixar was doing something entirely different with it. They were just making a piece of it available for people to mess around with. And then I went into, I learned 3D, I learned Form Z, and Form Z had a ray mm-hmm. tracer. And, oh my God, 18 hours <laughs> cooking for one image, right? <laughs> because you used glass and you had reflective materials and you had transparent materials. And when you stack transparent objects in front of other transparent objects and all the all the stuff going on there, it would just you know, exponentially make it take forever. And that was probably for like a 640 by 480 image. I mean, it was nothing big at all. It wasn't, there was no high def yeah. back then. And and to think how far it's come, I, I remember hearing a, a story about the very first Toy Story, right? And so speaking of Pixar and CPU rendering and having <laughs> render farms, and it was like that movie took seven over 70,000 hours to render. Right. It was anywhere from... <laughs> probably 35 minutes to 30 hours per frame it just and and it's like it's just amazing how many frames are in that movie i mean i think that that was when i was teaching at the university and and just talking about not only where things came from so people could understand kind of the foundation of modern image making technology but just like we take it for granted and people don't think when they see an animation because of real-time rendering nowadays, I, I imagine, and because it looks so effortless, that every second has 24 to 30 frames, <laughs> and every one of those images has to get rendered. And now it's like, it's just an afterthought. You don't, you don't even have to think about that. It's really interesting to me. So where, did, and maybe let's, let's, let's hit a middle step here, which is like, where did real-time come into the picture? Is it strictly from video game technology, like Quake or half-life or was it something else i mean i i think there's probably no shortage of people that can that can answer that more more intelligently than i can but i mean i i think that's one of the biggest driving forces i don't know if that's exactly where it started but i would say it's highly likely and if it didn't start there then it was a huge driving force because Mm -hmm. i mean you you look at it from from a financial perspective right in which there always has to be one because otherwise things things don't grow things don't go anywhere if there isn't that backing and i mean the the video game industry has been and will continue to to grow very very rapidly so i i see i see things like that as opportunities for for technology to really thrive and and real time has um recently especially i mean you you not only have software but you have hardware which Mm -hmm. is getting more and more capable so yeah we can actually deliver the things that we say we deliver, right? Because who hasn't seen those super, super cool tech demos that, you know, you would actually need a, a computer worth $40,000 to to actually yeah. achieve that level of quality. But um, uh, until you actually deliver that to people, you're, you're not really generating the value that, that you say you are. Yeah, it's interesting for me to think about companies like Epic, you know, with Unreal and, and Unity, and, you know, they've got these different companies kind of attempting potentially to break into AEC mm-hmm. and compared to the markets they're used to that just doesn't make any sense to me like I, video games have the biggest audiences 
AEC has got to be like a minor, minor piece of the pie. It seems uh, maybe they think it's something different than it is. I don't know. No, I, I, I think you're right on. I mean, to be honest, from my perspective, that's kind of evident in, in their product. Like, yes, the underlying technology is, is quote unquote effective at solving the, the problem, but they're, they're kind of approaching this without an understanding of the way this industry works and, mm-hmm. and how information actually moves. And, you know, I, I've seen a lot of these, again, like a really flashy sales pitch or a PowerPoint deck. And if you look at it intellectually, yeah, that sounds awesome. That sounds like, why right. why isn't everybody doing this, right? right. But, but you and I, that, that recently came off of an architecture firm experience, we all know there's underlying cultural, social, professional barriers to implementing these tools. So yeah, and and you're right. Economically, financially, it is it is a small piece of the pie. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is there is no world I can imagine where <laughs> our market starts to even compete for a small fraction of the market share versus, you know, gaming. Yeah, I mean, games have to have in millions of users. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely, and mm-hmm. we we don't see that happening anytime soon. I mean, even if you kind of make these types of tools business to customer instead of business to business, I think you're still dealing with an adoption curve, which is which is not insignificant, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I think that's exactly where where companies like us have a have an opportunity to differentiate. You know, if we if we really understand the core problem and mm-hmm. and deliver a solution that is receptive, not just to what the technology says we should do and need to do, but also to what uh, the demands are of the real people in the industry, then then I think that can be quite effective. Well, it seems like you guys have captured the excitement. I don't know if you've captured the imagination. I think you have because you've you've made it so easy. Talk about what it's like for Enscape to experience the kind of growth that it has and why you guys think that has happened or why you know that has happened in AEC. Yeah, the the growth has been really, I mean, really, really staggering in a good way. And, you know, knock on wood, we we continue to maintain a, a really, really rapid trajectory, even even throughout this year. What are we? I think we're around 100 people now. We were around 80 when I joined a couple months ago. Mm-hmm. And then we have, I think, about 25, 26 open positions right now today. Wow. So we're, oh, and we, we recently moved to a new office two weeks ago because our old one got a little too small. So it, it's happening. But, you know, the, the big question is why? Mm-hmm. I think for us, the, the foundation is that we, we have a product that people actually want to use. They like using it and they want to use it. We, we have sales, we have marketing, but we, and as, and as great of a job as they do, we really think that the strength of the product is, is what's driving uh, our success and, and hopefully continues to drive our success. But you know that, that responsibility is on us. We, we need to continue listening to the community. We need to continue uh, ensuring that we're delivering features and products that are that are relevant and that they you know have the right value proposition for the realities of our industry which you know again you and I know but uh, a lot of a lot of other vendors really have yet to learn how much of that is driven by the clientele that architects have do you think versus the architects just excitement about using a tool that's fun to use and gives them what they want do you yeah. think that there's an expectation set by clients of what they expect to see from an architect nowadays that's much different than what it used to be? I think there probably is at least a little bit of that. I mean, you know, we, we all kind of live in, in the same connected world where we have social media, internet, you know, so yeah. so you're exposed to these kinds of things when 
when you see that the new Amazon headquarters is announced, right, you see what that presentation looks like. So I, I do think clients are, mm-hmm. you know, scaling up their expectations as well. But, you know, the good news is that the, the industry is also scaling up the, the software and the tools that are able to deliver that and, and, and make it more of a reality for, especially for the smaller firms, you know, which you, which when you consider it, they are the vast majority of, yeah. of architecture firms globally. And these aren't firms with a dedicated rendering department. Most of these firms are less than five people. That's the biggest game changer right there, right? Is that now modern hardware can do this stuff without any special extra equipment. So any size firm has, like you said earlier on, and I think we could probably start to shift in this direction about the vision of democratizing these tools. At least that's what it sounded like you were alluding to. To me, that that's really the game changer here. And, and that combined with the cost, because other tools that you're competing against either are cheaper but way harder to use. Like if you wanted to develop your own, you know, Unreal app, yeah. right? You're you're going to be spending time in their visual programming or their coding section and, and applying material. Like it's it's just a lot. It's totally different. Or you've got something like like a, a Lumion, and you know you've got other things out there that that cost substantially more, but do different right. things. So you guys kind of seem to have hit a sweet spot there. Yeah, it, it's a hard one to to maintain, as as I think you you might imagine. But you know, there, there's always a balance, and I think for all the the other players that you listed, there there's a similar balance, right? And and we we do want to make sure though that that balance that we maintain is is as little of a barrier as possible. And it's a it's a hard question, you know, especially when you look at the fact that we're we're a global company and. You know, the purchasing power here may not be the same as the purchasing power elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the global picture is is very, very diverse. And it, it is, a you know, ongoing and a huge challenge to make that work. But, you know, for, for right now, we, we do believe that the value proposition is there. And, you know, for the tools that you mentioned, they're cheaper or, or they're free. They are. But I, like you said, you, you need to have a, a specialist and be the time to actually create something that's at the same level. And. Again, for most people, you, you really don't have a dedicated rendering department or, or somebody else that's going to sit there and do that for you, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, that's really where that stuff does come in, right? Is when you want to create really custom stuff where you can swap out materials yeah. on the fly and you can, et cetera, et cetera, turn the lights on and off and, and all those things. But you've got to have somebody there who's basically acting as your own firm's game developer to create those those experiences for people and and they are they are amazing no doubt and there is value there but again i think this comes back to that idea of the sweet spot of what do normal architects and i don't mean that in any kind of degrading way but it's like what do most people need most of the time and that really seems to be where you guys have inspired people exactly and especially these days i mean we're we're really shifting away from thinking ourselves as 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 a visualization firm we we want to be or sorry a visualization technology firm we, we really want to be a firm that makes products and technologies for design and yes visualization is right now the way that we deliver our value to the design process but we want to make sure that we keep a very keen focus on on the process mm-hmm. um, and and not kind of get a little potentially too enamored with the underlying technology with the means and the methods you know um, and again I, I think that can be a huge differentiator for us especially with the architects and designers that we we were just talking about Let's take a break from this conversation and welcome back the sponsor for this episode, ArcIT. 
A common misconception that comes up when talking about technology and actually IT in particular is the thought that hiring a specialized company to help you with that is an expensive undertaking. And actually, the opposite is often true, especially with a company like Arc IT, because they only work within our industry and they have the expertise and know how to run IT for your business for a very reasonable price. In fact, they are honest and transparent with their pricing, and you can find it right on their website. And you can check that out at getarcit.com slash pricing. So as business owners and architects, how often do we think about our IT provider? Typically, only when things go wrong. And for many of us, unfortunately, this happens too often, especially with the latest emphasis on remote work. I know that I've had to deal with my fair share of IT fire drills. Not pleasant. Arc IT, however, is a very different kind of company. They specialize in serving architecture, design, and engineering firms. And their goal is to help you use technology as a competitive advantage. This means that they understand your technology stack and they won't waste your time and money learning how your tools work within your process. Combine that with industry-leading response times, proactive remote hardware management, and solid disaster recovery and backup solutions. That's something that everybody should be thinking of, honestly. And enterprise-grade security management. And yet, above all, these are just table stakes for a solid IT company. Arc IT goes a step further. They become your strategic partner when it comes to planning, budgeting, and integrating new technology into your business processes. So all of this sounds expensive, right? Nope. Because Arc IT is highly specialized for our industry, their pricing is on par or in some cases even lower than other IT providers. Arc IT is transparent and even publishes the pricing right on their website. Uh, speaking of their website, there's also something else you should check out when you're there, and that is their Design Under Influence blog and video series. Again, adding value to IT type solutions across industry, all good stuff. So your business deserves a competent, responsive, and proactive IT partner. Reach out to my friends at Arc IT for a free consultation. So go to GetArcIT, that's G-E-T-A-R-C-H-I-T dot com, arc-like architecture in the middle, and click Work With Us. So thanks very much to Arc IT for sponsoring this episode of the Troxel Podcast. And now let's get back to our conversation. The traditional tools that we kind of reminisced about and, and skipped over a bunch of them, but it's very under the hood. You have to want to tinker with specular highlights and reflectivity yeah. amounts and and bump maps and normal maps and you know lighting setups and and there is a you know I think I definitely got caught up in a lot of that back in the the late nineties and yeah. that specialty made you valuable to a firm, but it also kind of pigeonholed you into just being the rendering person. Mm -hmm. And nowadays, by democratizing a tool or making all of that, you know, it's very much a, a phone-based app approach where it's like, just do what I want it to do, right? Mm -hmm. I don't care about twiddling all the knobs. I don't, I don't need the full-on MIDI synthesizer with every single knob. Right. I don't want a tool like that. I want a tool that does what I want it to do quickly and that is very delightful for people to use. <laughs> and But it also makes it so that somebody, like everybody just does rendering. I think that's one of the biggest shifts that I saw was was away from a, a specialty visualization department where there was two mm -hmm. or three people who were the expert specialists. It allowed them to move into more of what they wanted to do, which was the higher end stuff. Right. And it gave everybody, by introducing a tool like Enscape, it gave everybody the ability to just make beautiful renderings fast without going through this 
you know, very much so a constrained group where their calendar was booked for for months <laughs> to do renderings, you know, to do animations, to do fly throughs, to do custom app development or VR or any of those things where this is really just said, OK, you with your desk, with your laptop, you can do this, too. And and that's exactly what people grabbed onto. And not only that, but it it's fun to use. I think that's, to me, one of the, <laughs> the biggest one of the biggest things. And this is why SketchUp is such a force of nature in architecture. <laughs> or I think it's how it got there was it was just fun to use. That yeah. has so much more value than people think. Like nobody shows up on a day to day basis and thinks that Revit is fun to use. I mean, there are <laughs> there is a very small percentage of people who really think that. But for the most part, like people fight Revit. Yeah, that is yeah. A, the opposite of what you experience with a tool like Enscape. And and that's our goal. Um, it, it's a hard one. I'm I'm not going to lie to you. And and we 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 don't always hit the mark, but it's something that we we always think about. And I mean, when when you think of again, when you think of the core demographic of of people that are using our tool, and I kind of think of the professional background, the educational background, and and what the design process is. Like this is not a group of people that that I want them to fight with my tool they're they're used right. to i mean the natural steps of the design product there's exploration involved there there's an artistic nature to it there's i don't know there's discovery you know it's not this rigid here sit down give me your technical parameters i'll spit out what it's supposed to be no yeah. like we we want there to be yeah an interaction a, a bi-directional feedback. it's not a math problem right yeah it's a it's no, an artistic yeah. exploration exactly this this shouldn't be reduced to to a formula and and i think when you turn it into a production process, you do that, right? Because you say, well, I'm only going to produce a rendering, I don't know, once every two weeks when we have a client presentation. Okay, great. What about the other changes in, in the middle? So I agree. Interaction design is, I mean, it, it is one of our most, if not the most important pillar. Mm. And we're, we're very lucky to have some very, very talented folks there. And I mean, they're they're continuously being challenged though, because as you said earlier, nobody wants to see those knobs and sliders for the most part. but there are some experts that that do want to tinker with them. Yeah. So our job is to figure out how we hide the complexity for the most part, but also have the ability to expose it to those that feel comfortable with it. Yeah, absolutely. I, again, I kind of go back to the, the client expectation side of things and not from um, image quality or photorealism perspective, but more from a, I want to see the latest renderings all the time perspective of mm -hmm. where's mm -hmm. my project in the pipeline what updates do you have for me? I have a board meeting this week. What can you give me so I can show them where we're at? I think that this is one of the biggest drivers of real time nowadays. And I think that one of the tricky things here for architects has been to balance their infatuation with photorealism, right? Like <laughs> I, I definitely have seen it skew that way. Like if I can have that, yes, I want it. But I also know yeah. that it's expensive from a time, right. from a hardware, from, you know, expertise perspective versus the much more, you know, loose, desaturated, massing, you know, less detail, um, taking people through that process. I think that we, we are jumping to photorealism a lot faster, not only because of these <laughs> tools, but just because of the expectations that are out there, but also because tools allow us to get more detailed in such a quick way but still be flexible with the geometry which also helps that rendering side of the, st the storytelling aspect of it so we can keep pumping 
these boardroom meetings with real-time imagery with significant changes quickly. That, to me, is is kind of a fascinating turn of events that's happened in you know, the last, I don't know, maybe decade, maybe not, maybe less. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. And I think it's also been contributed by the fact that, you know, more and more people are starting to trust the the model as, as a central point of truth. Mm, that's a really it's, good it's point. It's not 100% there. It's it's quite far. You know, there there's still plenty of people that will tell you that BIM's not really working. And I'm not here to debate that topic. But I think overall, we've seen the industry shift to putting more intelligence in these models. And that's absolutely critical to getting these photorealistic, you know, in air quotes, visuals out. Because again, I see a lot of these tech demos, but I always ask myself, okay, well, how many times have I actually seen this level of, of material fidelity in a BIM model? Yeah. Let's let's be honest here. It doesn't happen very often. Right. Um, and it needs to be there. Otherwise, I don't care how good your engine rendering engine is, you're just not going to see anything. So there is some work there that, yeah, we, we can't really do. We, we kind of expect our, our customers to take the lead there. And as we see them continuing to do, then we all we have to do is continue to support it, make sure that our output matches the level of fidelity that they're putting in. Yeah, it's it's really interesting to see kind of I, I remember working on projects and designing buildings. And it was very much like a like you said earlier, when it's like we have agreed it is in our contract to deliver you renderings at the <laughs> end of design development period, and you will right. get three of them. <laughs> yes, yes. And now it's like you can spit out, you know, 50 images in an hour because you, you move the camera, save it, move the camera, save it, move the camera, save it. And you could potentially just have a a Pinterest board continually updating that a client can just look at any day, right. any time, and there's the latest. You know, and it you know, I just picked that off the top of my head, but it could be <laughs> a website, it could be an app, it could be yeah. anything. And it's like, yep, here it is. Here's where your project is today. And I think that that level of immersion for the client side to have the ability to peek anytime they want and see what's what's happening is pretty incredible and to me that's good for architecture it is i agree and it's it's it is an increasingly important area of focus for us as well because again i mean today if if you have the benefit of being in a in a large team like nbbj and and having a design computation team or somebody similar you, you can have somebody make that connection for you, you know, where where we maybe automate the, the export and maybe we tie it to a Pinterest or a website. Mm-hmm. But still, for most firms, I think that that bridge is, is still a, a, a yet another barrier. So we are we're kind of uh, yeah in the process of figuring that out right mm-hmm. now and asking ourselves, what can we do to make it even easier? Because we agree. I mean, the. I know that architects are a little hesitant of full transparency. And, yes. you know, that's not for us to next. decide what they show. Right. right. <laughs> it's not for us to decide what they show or not show, but it, it is up to us to give them the tools to make that decision yeah. and to make it easy for them to to decide when, where, with who. So, yeah, hopefully some things coming down the line um, in that respect for us. Yeah, I, I didn't mean to say otherwise, because I, I agree, like there is some amount of you need there to be certain beats that that your project hits that provide levels of payoff that isn't just a consistent hit of dopamine all the time. Right. Right. <laughs> and so right, I, I right. totally, I totally see, see that too. Like, but, but you're right. As far as the architect's ability to be in control of that in a much more easy way is, is, you know, welcomed. I'm sure it's fantastic. Yeah. And I mean, how much of the process is about crafting a narrative, a visual narrative, 
we we recognize that again we we want to focus on how design happens in this industry and not not just deliver a feature for the sake of saying hey here's a checkbox we ticked it now go have fun with this whether or not it actually works with your process yeah yeah okay so i i would love to hear kind of behind the scenes now this you know as if nobody else is listening to the show like what is the vision for for enscape where do you guys how are you going to go about democratizing this even further and what inspired you about joining Enscape with that yeah. alignment of vision? I think those two questions are, are are very very related, and they're very related to to the reason I'm I'm here as well. You know, my my primary responsibility is making sure that our our strategy, from both a product standpoint and a technology standpoint, is the right strategy in terms of helping solve the biggest problems for for our customers. Mm-hmm. So. You know, a large part of that is obviously where we are today and, and how do we do that with Enscape real-time rendering, which is an ongoing discussion. But another discussion um, in, a, in a huge, uh, you know, chunk of my time is figuring out what's next. What are other products or solutions or avenues that we can explore uh, that are equally relevant for our consumers? And again, this is all really good timing because we we recently uh, actually just launched the huge, I don't want to just call it a rebrand. It was much bigger than a rebrand for us. It was really just a synthesis of, of our DNA and an articulation of what we see as, as the core of Enscape. We wanted to share that with the outside world mm. um, and, and finally have that become our, our full identity. Now that we're growing as a firm, we're, I think, about to reach the six-year mark, uh, six-year birthday. You know, we're we're starting to better understand who we are and who we want to be in this industry, which I think is a great thing. And and uh, you know, I encourage anybody listening to go ahead and check out that mission vision on our website and and video. I think they're articulated a little better than I can, but it is essentially around this topic of continuing to create accessible design technology, and all in the spirit of of kind of being able to fully understand design and the built environment before we get into construction and start actualizing it, of course, with the goal of creating better environments, better communities for for all of us. Yeah. I mean, so that alignment with what the value proposition of architecture is, is that's a big deal. That's that's an amazing kind of statement, I think, for a software vendor to, or a vision for a software vendor to have, which is so much in alignment with what the purpose of real architecture should be. I, I think that's really interesting for a, a, a tech company to do that. That that's awesome. I, I agree, and and like I said, this is this is the reason why why I decided to, to join because I saw that we have this opportunity. I, I recognized that you know everybody was happy and ready to support it, and you know it, it helped me understand that we're going to approach this this business for in the right ways and for the right reasons, right? Because mm-hmm. there's, there's a lot of ways to do, to do not that. And, you know, I, I had, I had other offers as well, obviously from other places, but at the end of the day, it wasn't, you know, a question of dollars and cents. It was a question of, you know, I've spent so much of my career devoted to a cause. Am mm-hmm. I ready to just drop it or, or worse? Am I ready to act against it? Absolutely right. not. That's never, that's never going to happen. I don't care what you put in front of me. And, Everybody here, I think, is on the exact same wavelength. And for me, that that means that we can do some really cool things together. Yeah, interesting. So so how much um how much crap did you get from colleagues and other armchair quarterbacks in the industry for <laughs> switching, you know, going to this other side that this, you know, some people call it the dark yeah. side. Some people call called <laughs> architecture the dark side though too. So what was that like? 
Uh, it was actually the opposite. I, I don't think I got any any kind of negative uh, feedback, but I think that's that's twofold. Number one is is the reputation of, of Enscape as it is, right? I mean, everybody kind of uh, knew where I was going, and they again the reputation that Enscape ha- helped forge is was, was already speaking for itself before I even got there. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, number two is I mean my my reputation. I'm I'm <laughs> I'm Eastern European. I'm I'm not the kind of person to not say what's on my mind. Mm. Um, and and people know that I I've been very outspoken and open about what I see as as issues as opportunities in this industry, and I think people recognize that this this move wasn't wasn't done for the right reasons and and I, and I do feel very very grateful for that trust by the way I should I should say because it's a big thing and and now I have to deliver on that trust and and really make my contributions and our contributions uh, exactly in line with the positive expectations of the of the community. Yeah, well said. I I agree with that sentiment that because of the reputation that you have and because of the reputation that the that Enscape has, it does make sense in a meaningful way. And so I'm excited to see where you guys take this. Is there is there anything that you can share that gives us an idea of things that you guys would love to see happen with this kind of new reveal of the DNA of Enscape and, and where you guys want to take that? I I think there's there's not too much concrete that I'm able to share right now, but what I can say is that I mean we're we're actively pursuing this. So I'm I'm currently in the middle of of building our our R and D team, which is something that we we haven't had at Enscape ever before, mm. um, and we really see them as one of the the key strategic pillars to helping us pursue these questions. And again, I, I can't share the concrete topics just now, but but I can give a large hint because I mean it's it's kind of what I talked about with our DNA. We we want to solve what we identify as the biggest or most valuable problems for the industry. Mm-hmm. So let's see if 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 our interpretation of that aligns with with everybody else's. But what I can say is that this isn't a pursuit that we do in a vacuum. Mm. Um, we've learned a lot of lessons along the years, both from ourselves and from what we see other people doing in the industry. And we'll be, I'm personally, I'll be very excited to to share with everybody once we do have, um, you know, pinned down that direction and and we're ready to share with everybody else. My fingers are cross that it can be sooner rather than later but we we really want to focus on quality and and well just quality <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know yep i get it so if i could give you a little bit of a wish list that you know is is obvious stuff i think but to talk <laughs> about the the democratization of the tools um obviously that can that can go a lot further i think so any device i would love to be able to render my projects from my phone i would love to be able to render them from my ipad from a different from a location that's not tied to um, a fast internet connection because that stuff's happening in the cloud so i can see so much of architecture and i I just had a, a really interesting conversation with with another person about this was you know computers were was a thing that ran a program right not even an app right mm-hmm. and programs did the heavy lifting of architecture for so long right this is this is autocad this is revit it's bound to a computer and now we're seeing the shift into the cloud which enables people to do heavy lifting from anywhere but also from any device and i think that rendering as a technology has always been a desktop computer bound thing that with mobile technologies and better cooling design and better battery 
optimization, you know, the way that the programs are running on lighter weight devices has led to this explosion that we see now, right? right? Where I don't think Enscape would be what it is today without it running as well as it does on laptops, period. So I can definitely see the runway for that kind of ability for people to have, because especially in in a pandemic, right, where everything shifted to you know, our, our office went from seven locations to 350 plus locations overnight, but we could still render this beautiful stuff. Mm-hmm. And so obviously that's, that's a big deal. We didn't have to be bound to the desktop computer with eight fans screaming in it all the time with water cooled CPUs and all that stuff, because we could just do it on our laptops. And so I could see that right. we're not going back to that ever. So where are we going with that? And I could definitely see see some amazing potential with that kind of stuff. The other thing is, obviously, you talked about hardware developments and, and things are getting smaller. It is amazing to see what like an Oculus Quest 2 can do <laughs> as an untethered device, rendering yeah. 3D in real time for a fully immersive sound and video experience and a movement experience. That's incredible absolutely immersive incredible you are you're disappointed when you take the goggles off and come back to the real world kind of (laughs) impressive so architects need to be able to do that kind of stuff like they need to be able to inspire and i think you know we're we're on the path to get there but i would love to see that level of architects inspiring their clients and their clients clients with this kind of technology to get better architecture, to make better communities that make people happier and more productive and et cetera, et cetera, where all that leads. It's a huge opportunity and it plays exactly, I think, into, into the way that we understand that topic of accessibility because it's a, it's a big topic because there's so many barriers to it, right? Mm-hmm. It's not just uh, a knowledge barrier. It's not just a cost barrier. What What we're talking about right now is obviously a hardware barrier, which... I mean, it, it's still a very significant thing. So on, yeah. on the headset side, one thing that, that we're kind of you know, a little bit forced to do is, is wait for, for some of these, especially the untethered devices to kind of catch up just a little bit more in terms of yeah. performance before we're able to leverage them. Because, you know, the one thing that we don't want to do is, is kind of present Enscape as it is on your computer and then, and then have a degraded experience somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we want to be able to offer that parity and, and unfortunately to, to that effect, there's some things on the hardware side, we just kind of got to wait for it. Mm-hmm. But as far as the distribution of the workforce, I think with or without COVID that I think would have been a trend that continues probably not at this accelerated rate, but I think it would have continued to grow. And, and it is a trend that we've, we've identified and, you know, it'll definitely take some significant work for us to, to do something there, but it's an avenue we're continuing to explore because, it's a trend. We're, we're not going to stop it. People are people are working on smaller and smaller devices uh, in in completely remote locations and situations. And and again, mm-hmm. we need to recognize if that's a use case in the industry, then that's something that we we need to figure out how to support. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I I appreciate the kind of big vision. I didn't expect this conversation to go there, but I really am happy to hear about it because. Again, like this is this is the reason that I got into technology as well. On you know, again in the air quotes of proper architecture right this is the kind of thing that it takes to move the profession and our industry of aec forward this is the kind of thinking from an agnostic kind of platform idea it can't no one firm can do this it, it has to be somebody that enables all firms to do this and you guys are taking that to another level by making it accessible to like you said that the 80 percent of firms that are 
five people or less, which it is, it's just a huge number and enabling them to produce images and project kind of updates at the same level as, as these much larger firms with much larger teams. And that's, that's a phenomenal way to, to do that. So I, I think, you know, you guys being able to operate at that scale has just, it's been a game changer. So I, I can really appreciate that. It is, it is exactly what we're trying to do. And, and unfortunately it's very, very difficult. I mean, to be, to be perfectly honest with you, because as you and I know, coming from, from an experience in this industry, there are some paradigms which are, which are really hard to break down Yeah, and to, to just expect that you're going to do it through a technology or to a product, I think is a shade naive. And, and we really have to dig in deeper than that. And that's exactly where the difficulties begin. Right. But I, I think we're on the right path, and I, I think we're all very, very dedicated to continuing on that path um, because we do share in that vision, and I'm I'm really excited for what's what's coming next. All right. Well, you mentioned a mission and vision video on the website. Can you give us uh, a link that they can go to? I'll include it in the show notes, of course, but if you yeah. want to talk about where people can learn more about what you're working on, but also you follow you online personally and all that stuff, that would be fantastic. The, the Enscape website, Enscape3D.com. Otherwise, I think I can I can direct you to the YouTube channel with some specific links. But our our website, Enscape3D.com, I think is the the biggest source of truth there. And you can get to our blog, you can get to our forums, and that's where we communicate. I think you know all these kinds of things, videos and other updates. One last topic, since you brought up the forums. I mean, it it seems to me like the the really well loved companies in AEC technology are the ones that listen to user feedback and engage with their customers. Can you speak a little bit to that side of things from an Enscape perspective? Yeah, it's, it's absolutely core to what we do. Um, our, our product management team and our, our head of product have set up uh, an ever-growing customer advisory board. Mm. Um, and this is kind of the, the more or less the quote-unquote official mechanism that we have of, of getting high-level feedback. But in addition to that, you know, we we try to turn it into how do I say it? Not just an isolated touch point. We try to really bring it into our our every day. Mm. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, if you look across every team, they're doing it differently. But we're all engaging with customers almost daily. You know, there there are some sales calls that I'm on. There are some uh, partner calls that you know we have other people on. But the point is to always kind of have this awareness and, and direct line of communication with our customers, no matter what the feedback is, positive, negative, are we buying licenses, are we get rid of them, doesn't matter. We want to understand the reasoning and, and what we can do to, to be better. And like I said, it looks very, very different team to team, but we're, we're constantly trying to elevate that and, and you know, make it even, even more ingrained to what we do. And and there are a lot of people I think that help us out on that front. We we have industry partners and and friends like Dan Stein, who's very active, obviously in the AEC tech thought leadership community. But he's also one of those people that are you know almost strategic consultants and partners to us, and really help us contextualize our work and tighten that bond to other companies of you know the the representative of the diversity of the industry. So yeah, something we're very passionate about. Yeah, I had a conversation on here with Scott Davidson from McNeil, and the way that McNeil engages with its customers is very different than some of the much larger players in the industry. I think there's there's a love there, and also I I would also say that you know he he did say on the on the podcast that they they would have never imagined the direction that the product has gone right. on their own 
it's driven by users. And I think that that's, to me, one of the most beneficial things to hearing this story today is that people can understand that it doesn't, you don't have to be 1,000 user firm to provide useful feedback to a technology company because of the way that you guys want to engage with your customers. If you're hearing things and you understand where they're coming from and you understand why they're asking for things because you are engaging with them at that level, then it is kind of a level playing field for a lot of people and they can yeah. they can get in there, get their ideas and get their, their needs met, hopefully, with a, an agile software development company like you guys. Exactly. And, and we do want to make sure that, well, well, of course, we want to make sure that we don't just limit it to, to a certain scale of firm, right? Because like we said earlier, I mean, the majority of firms aren't those huge mm-hmm. firms. And the majority of our clients are also, uh, if I look at just from a statistical standpoint, they're, they're not just the biggest players. The biggest players are, are, are an important, but, but ultimately kind of small section of our, our client base. So if we were to just listen to their use case as well, you know, we'd be building uh, features that are maybe not relevant for, for the others. So we really try to bring it all together and, and make the very, very hard decision of what is going to make the most people happy. Yeah, well, thanks for going down that little tangent with me there. I think that that, that was an important thing. So last thing is where, where can people find out more about you and follow you online, Peter? Uh, good question. Yeah, so my my handle is pretty much you, the same on GitHub, LinkedIn, uh, Twitter, uh, M-I-T-E-V-P-I. Um, and on LinkedIn, I'm just my name. Peter, just spelled funny because I'm Slavic, P-E-T-R, <laughs> Mitev, M-I-T-E-V. But feel free to reach out. I'm, I'm very active and people, people kind of talk to me about random things all the time. I'm, I'm happy to engage if there's something that you're interested in or if you just kind of want to bounce some ideas back and forth. But I'm happy to hear from you. And of course, if you're an Enscape user or want to be a user or you just have some feedback or questions, feel free to reach out to me. Or, or again, go to Enscape3D.com and hit up our customer support if there's anything specific or very technical that you might need help or support with. Thank you so much for your time and your generosity today. It was fantastic to hear kind of this bigger picture vision and the way that you guys are approaching visualization, this piece of the puzzle that is such a huge piece of what architects do on a day-to-day basis. Um, I, I think it's it's fantastic. So it was a great story to tell for, for you guys to tell it and for me to be able to share that with our listeners so thanks very much for having this conversation today yeah thank you it was a, it, it was a great opportunity to be able to tell it indeed it's it's still fairly fairly new not as an idea to us but it's still a fairly novel experience to, to share it with others so i'm i'm really excited we got this chance thanks for listening to the troxel podcast and once again i would like to thank arc it for sponsoring this episode Visit their website at GetArcIT, that's G-E-T-A-R-C-H-I-T dot com. This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at GableMedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A dot com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out, and of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast, where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for eTroxel. Talk to you soon.